Good morning, ladies. We'll go ahead and get started. You, you'd be surprised how much you can write on 11 verses of James. Uh, yeah, no, it wouldn't surprise some of you. Yeah, I know that for sure. Uh, just before we start, and I will ask you in a minute if you have questions, but two completely self, well, not completely, mostly self-serving things. I put a little thing up here. There's Greek under it. But uh, my daughter's show choir, my daughter's in the show choir, senior in the show choir at Bellevue West. They're going to compete in Branson in March. And we're having a uh, fundraiser at Avery Church this Saturday, a spaghetti feed. And if nothing else, this will probably get you there. We're getting the spaghetti sauces from La Solo Mio. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, yes, we are. Yes. I, I happen to know Marie, and I hated to call her, but... I'm glad I did. Uh, and so the, the, we're feeding people spaghetti from 5 to 7.30. The kids will perform their performance set at 6 and 7. Uh, if you have little kids, it's really fun because they sing, they dance, it's active, and it's, it's really fun to watch. Uh, so yeah, that's this, and it's free, free will donation. So whatever you want to give, give. That's this Saturday. Come and join us. I told you there was Greek under there. Um, the second thing is a video clip that I think we have up. Do we have that video clip? Okay, I showed this last semester, and honestly, I mean, I, I made a loose connection because we are talking about joy, which is different than happiness, and I'll talk about that. Like one, There'll be one sentence about that in, in the uh, lecture, but mostly I'm just showing it because I just want to watch it again. For your watching hey, uh, pleasure, John John? Bert and, and John John. Oh, yes. John, John, you want to count? No, that's not it. That's, oh, we don't have it. Oh, that makes me so sad. He's cute, though, isn't he? Oh, it's, it's where they're talking about emotions. And, uh, <laughs> and Bert says, I'm angry. And John, John goes, you angry? And my whole family, <laughs> we quote that over and over again. So go home and YouTube. <laughs> Bert and John John and the Lost Paper Clips, and you will watch it and you will love it. If you weren't here last semester, poor Angie, how many times did you go home and watch that thing? Yeah, yeah, we watch it all the time just for fun. So, uh, yeah, come here, boys. I'm sure they love that. You can tell them, hey, look at this great highlight reel of the of the professional football, and you no, know, it's, it's Bert and John John and the Lost Paper Clips. But uh, that's okay, because it really didn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Well, a little bit, what we're doing today. Just fun. Um, and I love fun. Probably love fun too much. Uh, do you have any questions today before we begin? Oh, that's, I'm like, I'm in puberty, don't I? <clears throat> yeah. Do you have any questions today? No questions, really? <laughs> you don't know I'm going to answer them all. Okay, well, if, yes, okay, go ahead, Emily. Yeah, so what does he mean by trials, and, and what, were the, what were the sources of those trials? I'm not really, but I am going to talk. That's this word here for trial. I'm going to talk about it a little bit, and it's really any unexpected, unwelcome circumstance. It's not, there's some places in Scripture where it's talking about persecution, and it's persecution for, for our faith is the primary um, meaning for that. But in, in this case, it's really any unexpected trial. And I will talk about that a little bit. But their sor the source could be Satan. The source could be their own stupidity. The source could actually be God. 
uh, of that trial. Any other questions? Well, let's pray before we begin. Father God, thank you so much for today and uh, for being able to be here and be warm in this place. And I just thank you and praise you for your word and for these 11 verses that have just been so, um, not heavy on my heart, because in a joyful way, just so dear to my heart uh, over the last week as I have pondered them and just learned yet again um, from these 11 verses. So I pray that you would bless your word to our ears and our minds and our hearts today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, just a little brief, brief review of what we covered last week on the book of James, uh, the letter of James. It was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. In, in the early church, he was referred to as James, the brother of our Lord. Um, so he was probably the son of Mary and, and Joseph and probably younger than um, than Jesus, but that has been debated. It was written in the middle 40s, around A.D. 45, before the Council of Jerusalem that we talked about last week. And it was written primarily to, to Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem. And, and part of the reason for believing that is that early date, that, that in A.D. 45, most Christians would have been Jewish. Not all Christians, but most of them would have been Jewish. Uh, and its purpose, and, and it's hard to distill James down to one purpose, but its, its primary purpose was, is to exhort, and to exhort believers to a wholehearted devotion to Christ. You, you even see in these first 11 verses that don't be double-minded, be single-minded in your intent uh, toward Christ. <coughs> I am going to cough. So let's begin then with James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. There was a letter form. Uh, most of you know this by now, but there was a, a format, just kind of like we have dear whoever, body of the letter, love whoever. There was a format for that in the ancient world, too, and it would be the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, greetings. That's exactly what James has done here. James, he describes himself briefly to the 12 tribes, greetings. He's taken that form and used that form, which is true of really all of the New Testament letters. Sometimes in writing letters in the ancient world, the person would add as part of this greetings after his name and the recipient's name, uh, a thanksgiving, an expression of thanksgiving for that person or of gratitude or a prayer to God or the gods, depending on their religious affiliation. And New Testament writers tended to infuse into this um, format theological content. Now, James is a lot shorter than really pretty much any other opening, any other greeting in a letter. In exa for example, in fact, Paul in Romans takes six verses just to explain who he is. <laughs> not, not even explaining who they are, just explaining who he is. Now, Paul was a rather wordy man, though, so James, obviously, is, is shorter. But it's not devoid of theological content. As you're about to see, these few words have great theological meaning. First of all, James's self-description. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he chooses to describe himself is as a servant. Now that is an expression of humility, to say I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying he is, he is subservient. 
He is a slave. Uh, Paul used that same term for himself. He is a slave in service to God and to Christ. But, however, this term is used both in the Old and New Testament for great heroes of the faith. Moses was God's servant. David was God's servant. Paul frequently called himself a servant. Elsewhere, he'd call himself an apostle. But he often called himself a servant of Christ. There is a sense, then, that in which that James is, is expressing um, the honor, what an honor it is and what a privilege it is to be a servant of Christ. But at the same time, he is acknowledging his own authority. Because Moses had authority, David had authority, Paul had authority. And so he uses this word servant both in, in terms of humility, but also saying, I have authority to write this letter as the servant of Christ. Now, you may have wondered, and I think I even asked this, why would, if he's James, the brother of our Lord, why doesn't he say, this is James, the brother of our Lord? Why doesn't he say that? Well, first of all, they all knew it. But secondly, James's authority has nothing to do with his physical connection to Jesus. He does not, he has no need and he has no desire to come in saying, do you know who I am? I grew up with the man. He knows that he did not believe in him until after the resurrection. His authority has nothing to do with his physical connection to Jesus. It has everything to do with his spiritual connection to Jesus, that he is the servant of Christ. And that's exactly what he wants to em uh, emphasize in these verses. So he says it's to the, to the 12 tribes of Israel. That statement is loaded with theological import. The 12 tribes of Israel were originally the 12 tribes in the Old Testament based on the sons of Jacob. Not completely. There's a weird thing in there where the Levites were priests and the other two tribes were named after Joseph's, Joseph's sons. There's no tribe of Joseph, you may have noticed. It's, it's, it's complicated. But, but the 12 tribes of Israel were just that. They were the tribes of the Jewish nation and they were God's people. Just the briefest of histories, after the victories, the military victories of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the tribes were scattered. They were exiled. Throughout that period of exile, God promised through his prophets to regather his people one day, to bring them back together. And Jesus very intentionally chose how many disciples? That was probably on purpose. That was, that was a sign that that time of regathering had begun. In fact, he makes it very plain in Matthew 19 where Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a consistent thought throughout the New Testament, that the people of God, that the church is now the people of God. And that's what James is saying here. He's not sending these, this letter to the 12 tribes, Jewish tribes. He's sending it primarily to Jewish Christians. But he is definitely saying that these 12 tribes are the people of God. Um, and, and they are 
believers. So in calling these Jewish believers the 12 tribes, James is saying that they now constitute the people of God. That would have included Gentile believers as well. But given the early date of James, most of the believers were probably Jews. There were some Gentiles. They were exiled. They were living outside of Jerusalem, some because of persecution. Um, and it would have been read mostly by Jewish Christians uh, at that time. Now, the opening section, we won't get to all of this today because the opening section of James, the, the body begins, the body of the letter begins at verse 2 and goes to verse 18, kind of the opening section. We're only going to 11 today, so you'll read um, the rest of that this week, and we'll talk about it next week. Um, in, in James, and you've probably noticed this already, because James starts out saying, consider joy when you have trials, and then ask for wisdom. And hey, the rich man should not, you know. I mean, it's like, whoa, he moves really quickly from point to point. In fact, I'm convinced, convinced that had Ritalin been available to Mary, <laughs> she probably would have given him some. Um, because it just, it just moves so quickly. And sometimes, even the people with the PhDs have trouble finding connections between the different sections. It's like, whoa, where'd this one come from? You know, where does the rich man, poor man thing come from that all, all of a sudden seems to come out of uh, nowhere? James will frequently use what are called verbal links, which where he takes a, a root word here in a verse, he's changing subjects, and he used that. So he, we're going to see that today with the word lack. He uses the same root word early in the next subject. But beyond that, it's kind of hard to find links sometimes. Um, but once you really think about it, it becomes easier. The primary motifs of the, of the first 18 verses, or verse 2 through verse 18 of James 1, are enduring trials, which we've already seen, and spiritual wholeness or integrity, single-minded devotion um, to God, which we've already seen. So let's go to verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Sorry. <coughs> Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, by the way, the word for brothers there actually means brothers and sisters. That's not a, and this is the new NIV. It's all you can get online, so it's going to be a little different if you, if you use the old NIV. Consider it pure uh, joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So as I said, a lot of times in a, in a letter, it'll begin with a thanksgiving or a prayer or something like that. Not so James. James says, you know, I'm James. You're the 12 tribes. Greetings. Consider it pure joy. I mean, he just jumps right in. He gets right down to it uh, in his, it reminds me of Galatians in some way, ways in that, uh, to, to his point. And that may be an indication of the seriousness of the situation, that he wants to just begin exhorting them right away uh, of the situation that they're in. But James' basic point in these verses is that God allows difficulties into believers' lives for a purpose. God allows difficulties into believers' lives for a purpose, but that purpose can only be accomplished if believers respond to it in the right way. Um, so he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers. That's his favorite way, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, is his favorite way to address 
um, his, his listeners. He's going to use that term a number of times. And consider it pure joy. Now, pure, that word for pure joy means complete joy or unalloyed joy, not a pure uh, joy. Um, it does not mean nothing but joy, that you should experience only joy when you have trials. Because James realizes that trials bring about a lot of emotions. Sadness and, and fear and even anger sometimes. So he's not saying you should only experience joy, but he is saying that among the emotions that should be experienced is this utter joy, this complete joy. So long as we are viewing the trial rightly, and we'll get to the why in a minute. I will not answer that perfectly and completely. That's a class in itself. And even after the class, it still wouldn't be answered. Uh, if you get to the end of Job, and Job answers God, he, he, God's answer is basically, are you God? <laughs> no. Well, then you're not God. And Job says, I'm going to shut my mouth now. So there's really no complete answer to that, this side of heaven. I've said before, I love what C.S. Lewis says, the first thing we're going to say when we get to heaven is, of course. Then it will make sense. But among the things that we should be feeling is this joy. Now, when he says when you endure trials of many kinds, that word trials is this first word, pirasmos. And it can mean trial, an unwelcome um, out, outward circumstance, an unexpected circumstance. It can mean trial. It can mean temptation. Um, it just depends on the context of the word which it means. In this case, in this verse 2, it definitely means trials. An, uh, an unexpected, um, unwelcome circumstance. Now, what trials might his readers have been facing? Well, certainly, we find out right away, poverty. Many of them were, were exiles. They were what we would call refugees. Think of the modern-day refugees, those that know Christy Taylor and the people that, that she takes care of in Greece that are refugees from Iran and other Midwestern, or Midwestern, Mid Middle Eastern countries. Um, they were refugees. They were poor. They were outcast. So that would have been among the trials that they, that they faced. Um, they, they were persecuted. But really this term can mean any unwelcome, unexpected situation. It can mean sickness or loneliness or grief or, or you fill in the blank, whatever. So why joy? I mean, does that strike anybody else as being weird? Consider it joy. Uh, my brothers, when life stinks. Does that make sense? I'm telling you right now, that is not my usual response to trial. I mean, I've just been dealing with bronchitis, and I keep telling Jeff, I just want to stop coughing. Oh, get over it, Amy, you know? It's not that big a deal. Uh, but th so that's not my normal reaction. But when viewed from a different perspective, from God's perspective, we can rejoice in trials. So why Joy. Well, the first thing James tell, tells us is that these trials test our faith. And it is in that testing of our faith and persevering under it that we become spiritually mature, that we grow spiritually. It is part of the process of becoming 
more like Jesus. It's a refining process. If you know anything, and I know very little, about refining of metals, in order to make metals pure, they're put under the fire. They're melted. And it is in that crucible of, of melting and of fire that they become pure. Well, that's what James is saying. It is in the crucible of suffering, of trials, if we persevere, that we grow. That word perseverance literally means to remain under. The, the picture is of a person carrying a heavy load over a long period of time. Persevering, remaining under this load, but carrying it successfully for a long period of time. <clears throat> and indeed, trials can teach us about perseverance as we remain under them. But perseverance leads to something else. It leads to spiritual maturity. The, the goal is not perseverance. The goal is Christ-likeness. The goal is to become more like Jesus. The goal is, is to become mature in our faith and to have a life fully devoted to God. This concern for what we'll call spiritual wholeness or spiritual integrity uh, is probably the primary concern of James's letter. And he will return to this idea again and again. Now, why does God bring or allow trials? It's probably one of the most difficult questions in all of life, and I can't treat it anywhere near fully. And James doesn't really answer it either, does he? Um, but I just want to give you two thoughts here. James is at least implying um, in, in these verses that um, the suffering of Christians is always under the providential care of a God who wants what's best for his children. Um, a couple of semesters ago in, in Brookside Institute, we, used, uh, we studied apologetics and we used Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Fabulous book. If it has Tim Keller as the author, read it. It's good. Um, and here's what he said, and this really struck me. He said, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. That's, that's real. That's true. That's, that sometimes God allow thing, allows things that we don't understand or even brings things that we don't understand, but just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that, that he doesn't have good reasons for it. So <clears throat> the, the example I thought of, I actually thought of a couple with my kids, but I'm going to give you one about Lane. Our family, um, years ago, 2002, my parents took all of us, the whole extended family, four daughters, husbands, kids, everybody, on a Disney vacation. And this was, this was a wonderful, wonderful gift. Um, and um, Lane got a little sick just before we left, took him to the doctor. doctor said, take him, he'll be great. He got really sick as soon as we got there. The first night we're in Florida, we end up in the hospital. It was a fabulous, it was a palatial Disney hospital. It was amazing. But... <laughs> I'll never forget being in the emergency room. My son's struggling to breathe because he has both RSV and croup. And, 
and they're, um, they, they, they um, are trying to get uh, fluids into him, and they can't find a vein. And, he's, and he's, he's two years old, and he's screaming, and he's crying, and I'm crying, and I'm, I, I think I'm going to have to leave the room, but I can't, I've got to be here. And he's suffering, and, I, and it's upsetting to me, but guess what? It was necessary for him. They had to do that. We missed all the land portion. I was in the hospital with Lane watching basketball from his crib, and uh, even at two. Uh, but we did get to go on the, on the cruise portion of the trip, so it wasn't completely lost. Um, but I, I think that's a picture, too, of God. He suffers with us, and at the same time, he understands that it's necessary. So then uh, James is going to seem to take this turn and start talking about wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So what is the connection here? Well, there is, there is a verbal link that I talked about before. Remember that he may be mature and complete, and lack nothing at the end of verse 4. And now it says, if any of you lacks wisdom. So there is that connection. But I think there's a more important connection because James is saying, look, when you're going through trials, wisdom's really important. You're going to need this wisdom, so ask for it. You guys are, are suffering right now. You're going through trials. Ask God for wisdom in that, in how to respond and how to view those trials. Um, so he says, ask for it. Um, wisdom, this is, the, this is the shortest definition I could think of. Wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them. Now for the longer, much more theological definition, let's use David Nystrom. In the New Testament generally, wisdom is allied to understanding God's purposes and plans, plan and indicates a determination to live accordingly to God's purposes and plan. We need wisdom to know how to cope with trials, for wisdom provides a clear view of our situation from God's perspective. With wisdom, we perceive that what the world calls misfortune, whatever its source, is an opportunity for God to bring about his purpose. That's a beautiful summation of what James is saying here. Wisdom is what allows us to discern and obey the will of God and to see things as he sees them. In fact, Proverbs, which is all about wisdom, tells us that wisdom keeps us from immorality. It, it helps keep us from sinning. Wisdom also, among other things, enables us to live a life that honors God. And so we need this wisdom, and God will give it to, it, give it to us if we but ask. And, and then Paul, or, or Paul, James says, you should ask God, who gives generously? Actually, that word generously, this is the only place that's translated generously. This is the only place in the New Testament that that word shows up. And the root of that word or the etymology of that word, actually, the literal meaning is single or simple. Uh, not generous. I don't know how they got generously. But hang on with me here because I think this is really important. James is taking the virtue of integrity, which he is exhorting, his readers to have, and he's applying it to God. 
Um, he's taking that same authority. All godly virtues are rooted in the character of God. We are supposed to be merciful because God is merciful. We love because he first loved us. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. All godly virtues are rooted in the character of God. And so is this single intent, this single-minded purpose. Secondly, spiritual wholeness or integrity is probably the most important theme in James. So what James is saying here is, is not so much that God gives generously, which he does, but he's saying that God has a single undivided intent to give his children wisdom when they ask. He has a single purpose in doing that. He is not double-minded in doing that. And um, he gives us that wisdom without any regard for our previous track record in terms of wisdom. That's what it means that he gives without finding fault. You ask, you ask believing, you get it. That's his single-minded intent. But we have to ask with the right attitude. So just as God has a single intent in giving it to us, we must have a single intent in asking for it, knowing that God will give us what we ask for because it's part of his character and because he's promised to do so. We're not to doubt. Well, what does that mean? Because I don't know about you, but I've certainly had doubts. That does not mean the, the honest doubt that we all have at, at different times. This is a kind of doubt that brings wavering into our life about the very character of God, about our attitude toward God. It's the person who lives a life of doubt. Um, it's, it's the person who is, is without spiritual integrity. This is what Doug Moose says about that. He says, so the doubter not possessing an anchor for the soul, from Hebrews 6.19, does not pray to God with a consistency or sincerity of purpose. Pray to the shifting winds of motive and desire. He wants wisdom from God one day and wisdom from the world the next. So he's not seeking God even within uh, his doubt. Uh, I know that I've, I've shared this before, but the, the biggest crisis of faith of my life came after my father died in 2003. Um, he had had Alzheimer's. It had been a long struggle. And, um, and I remember going home afterward and just having this, this doubt wave over me. And I just remember thinking, what if none of it's true? What if I've given my life over to a lie? What if I'm never going to see my father again? And it just controlled me for a really long time. But two really important things, like, like years, but two important things happened during those years. One was that I continued to seek God in that. I continued to trust God in that. But here's the more important thing, and here's how I know that it is true. God never let me go. He never said, eh, you're having trouble with me? Bye. He held on to me through that storm. So it's not the honest doubt. That was honest doubt. That's not the honest doubt that he's talking about. And, and then he gives this powerful word picture of the double-minded man being like a wave of a sea. That's not a crashing wave. If you've ever been on a cruise and you've sat on, on, on the deck and you've seen the swells of the sea, they're very changeable, aren't they? And you never know where they're going to go. 
and they're shifting and they're changing and they're unstable, they're inconsistent, they're taking on different form constantly, that's the doubter. That's the double-minded man, inconsistent, changing, in love with God one minute, in love with the world the next. That word double-minded is a beautiful word. It's disikos or how did, how did Tim tell me to say it? Sukos. That's how he said it. Um, and it, it literally means double-souled. It's never used in Greek literature before this. It was probably coined by, um, by James. And, and uh, <clears throat> what he's saying in this is that it's, it's a basic, this double-souledness or, or double-mindedness is the opposite of single-minded devotion, and it's a basic division of the soul that leads to thinking, speaking, and acting in ways that contradict our, our faith or contradict our uh, claim to belong to God. It's what my youth leader used to call spiritual schizophrenia. Now, I know if any of you are in psychology, I know that literally that's not right. But let's, let's just go with that, okay? Spiritual schizophrenia. Um, God will not respond to the prayer of that person, that prayer for wisdom. And then in, in verses 9 through 11, we have this rich man, poor man thing, which again seems to kind of come out of the blue. Believe, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will, um, their low position, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So what we know, what we can tell from this is that James is making a contrast. He's making a con contrast between the brother who is in humble circumstances, meaning a poor believer, and to a wealthy person, another person who is wealthy. Now, there are two basic questions about this passage. The first one is, how do they fit into the context? What do they have to do with what came before it? How is, how is this tied into what James has already taught. The second one is, is the rich person a Christian? We're gonna answer that one first. I will tell you that scholars are evenly divided, about 50-50. So I'm not gonna take a real hard line stance on this, but I do have an opinion, I usually do. Uh, and so I will, I will give you that. I read multiple pages, like maybe 10 pages on these verses. So I'm gonna distill it down. I'm gonna make it uh, hopefully very simple. I believe that that James is talking about rich believers here. And, and here's why I believe that. The first thing has to do with grammatical structure, the grammatical structure of these verses. The syntax uh, is the word. Um, those two statements, the, the brother who is in humble circumstance and the one who is rich, they're grammatically parallel to one another in the Greek. And so essentially what James is saying is, um, the one who is rich, who is a also, who is also a believer. Um, and so I believe that is true. The second reason I believe that he's talking about a believer is that later in James, he's going to talk about wealthy non-Christians, non-believers, and he's going to be really, really harsh. Like, wow, blown away, harsh. This is not as harsh. You're just going to have to trust me on that. This is not as harsh. So I do believe he's talking about believers in, in both. Let's just talk about James's point here. Just, let's just back up kind of 35,000 
foot level, to use another Tim Weebyism, and, uh, and look at this from, from um, a high view. James is exhorting each of these people, the believer in humble circumstances and the wealthy believer, to look at their spiritual identity um, as, as the measure of their ultimate significance. Uh, the, to the poor Christian, James is saying to look beyond the realities of this world. Um, he's saying that this world may tell them that they are poor, that they are lowly, uh, that they are worthless, but Jesus says, your identity is in me. And the reality is, you will one day live and reign with me. Uh, and so therefore, what the world may relegate the poor to is a low position. The reality is, the spiritual reality is, that they are actually exalted. They actually have a, a high position. So James says, take pride in that. Take comfort in your high position of being one who is exalted in Christ. To the wealthy Christian, James is saying, hey, don't take pride in your wealth or your social position because that's fleeting. That does not last. You li literally, truly cannot take it with you. So don't take pride in that. Instead, take pride in your humble position as one who identifies with the one who was despised and rejected uh, by this world. As a follower of Christ, those wealthy believers are servants of Jesus, just like James is, just like that poor believer is. No better. Doug Moo again says, the point of the passage is then that Christians must, must always evaluate themselves by spiritual and not material standards. Maintaining such a perspective in a world so insistently confronts us with a very, that so insistently confronts us with a very different standard of measurement is not easy. But if the church is to be the kind of countercultural society that Jesus intended it to be, establishing, establishing and propagating such a perspective is essential. We need to see ourselves from our spiritual identity. <clears throat> uh, now, how does this passage connect with what uh, James has already taught? Poverty and even wealth can be one of the trials that James is talking about. In fact, I believe it is. They are uh, some of the trials that he's been discussing. But I think more importantly than that, James still has an eye on the idea of single-minded devotion, of, of, being, of, of not being double-souled, because money and material things have a way of taking people away from spiritual um, integrity. It has a way of causing people to be double-souled, to be double-minded, to not be completely devoted to Christ. A person with unwavering faith will have the wisdom to see his or her worldly wealth the way God sees it. And very, very likely, as he often does, James probably is thinking about Jesus' teaching here. By the way, there have been several places where I could have thrown in Jesus' teaching. I just didn't have time. But here's one where I will, and you probably already thought of this verse. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think that's exactly what James is saying. You can't have two masters, rich people. You either love your wealth or you love God, but you can't love both. 
Uh, so see yourself the way God sees you. Well, I just want to end with just a little bit of application about facing trials. Uh, I'm not going to go real deep here, but, but I would like to encourage you. I don't know what's going on in most of your lives, and maybe life is just ginger peachy for you right now. I don't know, but this much I know. You will face trials in your life. Everyone does. <clears throat> in fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I just want to give you two quick thoughts on this, on this idea of facing trials, particularly for some of you who are going through them. The first thought is that God may see your trials, see our trials differently than we do. What we may see as good, God may not. And what we may see as bad or evil, God may see as good. I may have told this story before, I'm sorry, for those of you if I had, but my daughter all her life, she was two years old and watching Barney, when she turned to me and said, Mommy, when will it be my turn to be on TV? Uh, all her life she has wanted to perform. And if you come to the spaghetti feed on Saturday, you'll see that she, when she's on stage, she lights up. She loves to perform. And so all her life, she wanted to be a vocal performance music major. She got to Royal Family Kids Camp last summer and walked up to her brother at one point, I didn't know this until much later, and said, Josh, I think God's calling me to be a social worker, but I don't want to. <laughs> and Josh said, do not ignore God. I did it for four years, and look what happened to my life. And then she forgot about it. She went to San Diego uh, with the youth group, and, and the first day there was a day of fasting. And she said, Mom, I'm not the kind of person that thinks God talks to me, but in that fasting, I heard clearly from God. And I'm not supposed to major in vocal performance. I'm supposed to be a social worker. And God told me two things. The first thing he told me was that if, if I even go to the auditions, because she always thought I'll audition, and if I don't make it, I'll be a social work major. She, God told me if I even go to the auditions, I'm being disobedient. And secondly, God told me, he's protecting me from something. And as I prayed about that, because this was a shock to me. We're in the, in the car going home from the airport, and I'm like, you're going, what? <laughs> you know, whoa, whoa, you know. And, and so this was, this was, you know, weird for, for me. Um, but she said to me, as, as I prayed about it and prayed with her, I realized God is protecting my baby. For I don't know what. I don't know what. I don't need to know what. Katie said to me, Mommy, I used to be afraid that I'd try out, I'd audition, and I wouldn't make it. Now I'm afraid I'll audition, and I will. And so she's going to go to college to be a social work major. You see, what we initially saw as a good thing and as the path God had for her was not. God saw it differently. And sometimes bad things happen that we think are bad, but God may see that differently from his perspective. And that's partly because of the next point, and that is that trials often allow God to grow in us what could not otherwise be grown as long as we respond to them correctly. I'm a little worried about putting this out on the internet, but um, a year ago, I was in a very difficult place in my life. My mother-in-law was very, very ill. I'll give you the ending of the story, the spoiler alert. She's doing amazingly well. We saw Dick Osterholm yesterday, and he was like, I think you're healthier than I am, 90 years old. God healed her miraculously. But a year ago, 
It was bad. Ask anyone at this table. It was bad. And she was in assisted living. It's just I was the assisted living. And I was trying to be a mother and a wife and a Bible study teacher and a caregiver all at the same time. And it was difficult. She couldn't shower herself. She couldn't do her own laundry. She couldn't make her own meals. She, she really should not have been living on her own. And I was having a rough time. And I remember being, you know, and now I never said, why are you sick? Get out of my life. No, when I was, when I was with her, I was like, it's okay. I love you. I'm happy to take care of you. This, I was double sold. And then I heard Nancy Guthrie who said, when you experience trials, ask God what he wants to grow in you. Ask God to grow the spiritual qualities in you that he wants to grow. So I began to pray. And I began to say, God, give me joy. Give me real joy. Not pretend not joy. Not joy that's like, it's okay, Betty. I love you. And then turn and act differently. Give me peace. Give me patience. Make me more like you. And you know what happened? He did it. I remember driving to Bible study one morning after I dropped off a big jar of her pee at the doctor's office, and I'd had to stay with her all day to help collect it. And I'm in the car driving to Bible study, and a song comes on, and I'm singing, and I'm, you know, you are good to me. It was a, it was a watermark song, and I'm singing, and you are good to me, you are good to me. And all of a sudden, I realized, he's doing it. This is genuine. I'm, I, I, God is growing in me what could not otherwise be grown through this trial. Ladies, we need to ask God for wisdom that we can, we can um, experience in difficult situations, the wisdom we need in difficult situations so that we can see that difficult situation from his perspective, not our worldly perspective. And then we need to say, and God, through this trial, Make me more like your son. Grow in me Christ-likeness. And ladies, God is faithful. He'll do it for his glory and for our good. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for James, who just doesn't pull any punches, but tells the truth. Sometimes that's what we need to hear. That's what I need to hear. Thank you so much, Jesus. I pray in, in your name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. I'll see you next week.